A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences, as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community. Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Anoush, and I'm delighted to be joined on today's episode of the New Statesman podcast by the actor Michael Sheen, who's guest editing a special issue of the New Statesman out this week, exploring the idea of a British dream. It has contributions from Armando Iannucci, Gary Young, Bernadine Evaristo, Andrew Marr, Jeremy Della and Ali Smith, and many more, as well as pieces from the 11 writers from the mentoring scheme called A Writing Chance, which he co-founded to showcase new and aspiring storytellers from underrepresented backgrounds. the New Statesman issue that I've guest edited is about exploring what is the story that we either consciously or unconsciously believe represents us as a nation and does it really. I talk about the idea that there are lots of different alternative names for Mm. Britain, the United Kingdom, but they tend to also be names for England. So Albion is a name, a sort of a more romantic Mm. name for the whole of our islands, but actually it also just means England. And yet, of course, England is the only one of the home nations that doesn't have its own anthem. So there's lots of contradictions in there as well. Yeah, that's very true, actually. Yes. And and in that piece that you cite, the one that, that you've written in the magazine, introducing the subject, I think it's really interesting because you rightly say that we often hear statements about Britain, things like, this is not who we are, or what has Britain become? And actually, you've heard a bit of that in our slow response to Ukrainian refugees compared with mm. the rest of Europe, for example. How can we ask those kind of questions when we don't really have that collective imagination about who we are? Did you come to any conclusion about sort of what we feel we are? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you pick up on that because just in the last couple of days, I was really struck by a piece that someone wrote saying, you know, we, we've heard so much in the last little while with the situation in with the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the refugee situation saying, you know, we in Britain have a strong and proud tradition of taking in refugees and, you know, offered the World War II is cited and taking in Jewish refugees. And that's and that's not entirely true. It was the kinder transport because we were only prepared to really take the children. We weren't so prepared to take the adults because we were worried about them taking our jobs and that kind of stuff. So the idea of this proud tradition and that we are British and that's what we do 
there's a lot of contradictions in there. There's a lot. That's, we do seem to have a strong sense of wanting to go, that's not who we are. And, but is it who we are? Is it not? There's a lot more complexity there. And we've also seen over the last couple of years as well, with all the wanting to take down statues and the mm. arguments around history and who do we celebrate and should we, should we look at the kind of cultural and historic legacies and how we celebrate those and how they get manifested in our culture. And even having that conversation is very difficult for us as a culture, as a community. It's, you know, some people really want to take that on and, and change it. And other people just really don't want to do that. And it's become part of that culture war, isn't it? And, and it, it's, it's both scary and fascinating how difficult it is for us to have that conversation. And I can only imagine really that it's because, our, as I said before, as our, na our national conversation, if it is not truly representative of who we are, then those conversations are going to be really hard because we're, we just won't be used to hearing certain voices. And if we're not used to hearing them, then it gets very difficult to, to have certain conversations. Something that came up in, in an interview that you did with Tony Blair for the magazine, actually, was that often our national identity can be looking back on a past where we tell ourselves that we were a greater nation. And that's something that you discussed at, at length with him. And I wonder whether you think really in that sort of zone now, sort of post-Brexit, and with the union sort of fraying at the edges, obviously, as a Welshman, you'll be keenly aware of how devolution can often be delegation rather than the true sort of transference of powers. Mm. How do you feel about that? One of the things that always stands out to me is when I hear people talking about what it was like before the NHS. When we talk about a kind of romanticized past, it depends on whose past that is and what, where you were. There's a tendency to think back to a time when Britain was something that it just wasn't. And you've got to be really careful about that. Especially, it seems to me that the peddlers of that, the biggest peddlers of that kind of romanticized notion of the past are the ones who would be quickest to sell the NHS off and the quickest to privatize everything. It's a bizarre <laughs> I irony that just go and, and there won't be many left for long, but go and talk to someone who remembers what it was like before the NHS was around and see how romantic that was. So I think it's right in the interview with Blair, he talks about the idea that the Labour Party is at its strongest when it's, it owns the future. It owns a sense of the future. And that looking back and trying to capture something, whether it was actually real or not from the past is just not going to help. And I suppose in some ways that's the source of his incredibly negative views of, of Corbyn and the Corbyn project that he sees that as being completely regressive. But I sort of challenged him on that mm. around the idea that whether you agreed, whether he agreed or anyone agreed with Corbyn or not in, how, in, in the offer, it was a radical offer. It may made Tony Blair think that it's a regressive radical offer, but it was a radical offer. I'm not sure how radical the offer of Starmer is. And I challenged Tony Blair around the idea that Corbyn actually had more in common, common with him than Starmer did. Because when Blair put himself forward as becoming leader of the Labour Party over Gordon Brown back, back in the early days, his justification was because they, the, the Labour Party couldn't just chip away around the edges of the Tory party any longer and just deliver more of the same. It had to offer something radical. And that's what Blair believed that he, he was doing. And, and I don't see that happening at the moment. It feels like there's a chipping away around the edges of the Tory party again, rather than an actual radical offer. It seems to me that Corbyn was offering something radical. And a lot of, that's why so many young people were galvanized by him, because it did feel like real change. Now, a lot of people who we're older and have been around in the 
70s and felt that it was going backwards. But nevertheless, I think it was radical and, and there were probably more similarity to Blair than, than Blair was comfortable about thinking about. Yes, I think you, you put to him that he his leadership of the Labour Party was more similar in that radical sense to Jeremy Corbyn's than it is to Keir Starmer's, for example. Exactly, yeah. And, that and he didn't if, disagree. No, he didn't. I mean, I had an interview had come out with him just a few days before I did the interview with him, and I, which I'd read. And I found myself getting very angry reading the interview because I, he is so condescending and dismissive of Jeremy Corbyn. And, and it is difficult, I think, to hear someone talking about how he didn't feel that he could ask his constituents in Sedgefield to vote for that guy meaning Corbyn, when you say, okay, so what, they don't have a problem with, with you having a responsibility for the death of 500,000 Iraqis? Really? I don't feel that it's, I don't feel it's appropriate for someone to be so dismissive of another Labour leader for the reasons that Blair has for being dismissive of Corbyn, when there are so many reasons. I mean, he, he said himself, he clearly wants to get back into politics. And mm. he said himself that he doesn't feel that he'd be allowed to. When you know that there's so much anti-feeling towards you, or maybe I'm answering my own question, <laughs> why would you have such anti-feelings towards another Labour leader? <laughs> yes, I mean, I chaired that interview and you, you did clash over sort of Corbyn's leg legacy and the sort of challenge for the next Labour leader. And uh, and I thought, actually, you, you do represent different traditions of the left, of course. And I wondered how it felt for you, because obviously, as our listeners will know, you've played Tony Blair on multiple occasions, three times, I think. So, mm. so how did it feel in that sense to, to come face to face over Zoom with him <laughs> in that way where you sort of mirrored his character, but at the same time, you do yeah. have fundamental disagreements? Yeah, it's a sort of strange psychological <laughs> state to be in where on the one hand, I, as I said to him, I, when I see him on TV or, or hear him, there is a bit of my brain that feels like I'm listening to at least a close family member, if not myself. And so I do have a bit of weird psychological dissonance going on with that. And yeah, I do, you know, I do, I mean, there's a lot, part of my job as an actor is to be sort of non-judgmental about the character and just try and connect with them and understand and inhabit, you know, and, and so there's a lot that I find really fascinating and admirable and inspiring about him and what he has achieved and what he's done. And then there are other things that I, that I really do disagree about and, and find really problematic. I mean, not to the point, I think that I'm sure, I'm sure I will get a lot of flack for even giving a platform as it will be seen to, to, to Tony Blair, because people see him as a war criminal uh, uh, and that kind of thing. And I, I don't go that far, but I think as a, as a man who was in power for 10 years and was the most, in terms of forming governments and being in power, the most successful Labour leader there's been, it's really important to try and understand him and what made him successful and all that kind of stuff. And there, there has, for the Labour Party itself and for the left, there has to be a reckoning with the legacy of Blair. You know, I think we saw with Miliband not really taking on the positives of what happened in the Blair Brown years was a mistake, allowing other people to set the narrative and to somehow, in order to try and distance yourself from the negatives of what happened over Iraq and that kind of stuff was something that we're still paying for. I think that was a mistake. So there has to be some kind of reckoning and, and trying to find some kind of way to bring together what Corbyn represents 
represented and what Blair represents and represented is going to have to happen. It has to, because there's no, I really can't see a future for the Labour Party if it can't do that. And that kind of civil war, that really vicious, horrible fight, ideologically and morally and, and all the rest of it, it has to, have, there has to be a way to, to find a sort of synthesis of that, because I really don't, with the way that we're changing, the way the kind of the coalition, the traditional coalition that Labour has relied on is changing and shifting the way the Tories have, are, are trying to take over whole areas of what Labour used to think was their turf. They've got to find a way to, to come together. And in a way, that, that kind of attitude that Blair has towards Corbyn, I'm sure that Corbyn has towards Blair, that trying to find a way to, to break that down and find a bridge between those two things is the challenge for Labour. Yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, it strikes me that something that you're trying to do with this issue and with your piece and even with your conversation with Blair is, is trying to work out sort of what Britain's story is today is something perhaps mm. that the Labour Party ought to be doing under Keir Starmer. Yeah, not just because of the questions that it brings up about the union, but also about who, if you want to represent the people, then who are the people? What is it that you're trying to represent? If you can't understand it, <laughs> if you can't, have a sense, a, a really true sense of who we are, then how can you possibly uh, you know, expect to lead and to know what we need as a country? And again, it goes back to the reasons for doing a writing chance. We have to hear from everybody. We have to hear from all experiences and all walks of life in order to have a real true sense of who we are now and where we're going. Hello, it's Alva here. This is just a reminder that as a podcast listener, you have the option of subscribing to The New Statesman with a very special offer. At the moment, you can subscribe from £1 a week. That's 12 weeks for £12. If you go to www.newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman World Review comes France Elects, a special podcast series exploring the main candidates and the big issues shaping the campaign to be France's next president. I'm Ido Vok, and over the next two months, I'll be joined by special guests to dissect incumbent Emmanuel Macron's record, his rivals to the right and left, and key issues such as foreign policy and the climate. Just search World Review on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. What was it about your own background and your own journey into your acting career that's made you reflect on the fact that America has its own American dream, one of meritocracy, 
whereby no matter who you are or where you come from, you can achieve success if you work hard enough. But Britain, in the words of one of the writers in this issue, Gary Young, suffers from a failure of collective imagination. As time has gone on, I've become more and more aware of how my path depended on so many other people and so many factors. I mean, at the time, just I certainly just took everything for granted and just sort of, you know, toddled along on my path and suddenly found myself having this the life and career I've had. But I look back on it increasingly and realize how much it depended on. And at the same time, realizing how much of those things, those factors and the work that those people did and organizations and all the rest of it, how much of it has disappeared. How much is of it has gone? And I suppose in a way, I find myself as being part of the legacy of what happened in the 50s. There was a sort of cultural revolution in this country in the mid-50s um, with plays like Look Back in Anger and A Taste of Honey and films Saturday Night, Sunday Morning and Billy Lyra. And, you know, that whole kind of cultural revolution that happened where suddenly regional voices and working class experience was front and centre in novels and films and plays rather than being full side note characters. And suddenly there was a whole shift in perspective and a massive deepening of the conversation, the national conversation. Um, and I suppose I'm a direct descendant of that legacy coming from the area in South Wales I come from and the kind of background, the kind of the community that I come from, that, that was only made possible because of what happened then. And I'd always just sort of assumed that was a given. That was something that happened and would never go away again. And I think increasingly I've realized that, you know, my, when I think about the specifics of my background there, so I come from, first of all, a supportive family. I have a family mm. background, but where people in the family were into sort of amateur performance. So the idea of going into performing as a career was still scary for them, thinking about me doing it, but there was a kind of natural inclination towards it. The community I came from, the town I came from, Port Albert, even though it's not a town that you would think would be particularly sympathetic towards the arts or actors, but because of the, the tradition there of having Richard Burton come from there, Anthony Hopkins coming from there, there's a, there was a real kind of respect for acting. But the specifics of my path coming through school, doing school plays, my drama teacher at school telling me that I should audition for the local youth theatre, getting into that local youth theatre, not realising at the time, but it being possibly the best youth theatre in the country at that time without me knowing that, producing the likes of people like Russell T. Davis, as well as myself and others, and it being funded by the education system in the area, the local county education system. There was also the, an amazing youth art infrastructure in the area because there was a youth dance company that Catherine Zeta-Jones was a product of. Like I say, the youth theatre, myself, Russell T. Davis, many, many others. So there was a real youth arts infrastructure in the area. I got a grant to go to drama school. I went to RADA. I just did what other people in my youth theatre did. They just were in the youth theatre and then they auditioned for drama schools and they seemed to get into them. And so I just did the same thing, basically. And off I went to, I got into RADA. I went off to RADA, left RADA, got a job in doing a play in the West End and I was off and running. But I look back and I think about what about the kids who come from the same sort of area that I did, but don't have actors, famous actors who came from there to have as examples and go, yeah, they sound like me and look like me. And if they can do it, I can do it. What if you don't have that, if you don't have a supportive family necessarily, if you don't have that sort of rich arts infrastructure, if you don't have a school that does plays, I've looked look now and seen my footsteps disappear really. My school, first of all, stopped doing drama as a subject. 
Then it closed down altogether. My youth theatre had its funding cut. The, the, I was the last year to get a grant to go to drama school from my area, I think. I th- and I had lots of advantages. I think about the people who didn't have those advantages. And even my path has disappeared. So that revolution that happened in the, in the 50s um, that, you know, I and so many others are direct descendants of, that I, that I always just assumed would never roll back. It was just done and would continue to be there. The danger is that is going away again, that we might go back to how it was before that period of, in the 50s. And that cultural conversation that suddenly broadened and deepened might be narrowing again and only certain people's stories, only certain people's experiences are going to be heard or that stories and experiences from more working class backgrounds, more underrepresented backgrounds might still be told, but they won't be told by the people themselves They'll be who've had those experiences and, and have those stories that they'll be told about people by others who don't share that experience. And that you know, in some ways is even more dangerous. That's really interesting because there's a piece by one of your fellow actors, Mark Gattis, in the issue, and he talks about the 50s and 60s being a time where working class actors and writers could flourish. But then he writes, the old order always seems to reassert itself. Mm. And I wonder if you agree with that assessment. I think when you think about the difficulties for people, whether they're actors, writers, journalists, whoever it might be, coming out of training, if they've had a training or trying to break into their industries. If you have to, if you're expected to work for nothing to begin with, if you're expected to do, you know, unpaid internships and that kind of stuff, there's only certain people who can afford to do that. Not everyone can afford to come and live in London and work for nothing. And that this sort of expectation, or oh, you have to pay your dues and you have to put the work in. You can't expect to go straight into an industry. That means that only certain people coming from certain backgrounds and with certain kind of uh, family connections and that kind of stuff are going to be able to do it. And of course, yes, the old order will reassert itself because people will just be squeezed out because they won't be able to be around. It's been the experience for a lot of people for some time now. You, know, you start to see the results of that. Mm. And you talk about that meaning that sort of people's stories are told to them rather than by mm. them. And actually another re- reference to this in Gattis's piece is that he cites the southern suburbia on The Good Life that he saw on TV and even the alien invasions in Doctor Who that he used to watch as a boy were set in the southeast mm. of England. And there was just this understanding that people on telly are posh. And I wonder if you had the same experience when you were growing up watching TV. Well, I suppose this, the extreme example of that, I suppose, mm. is I've heard people talking about the famous sitcom Mind Your Language mm. and that certain people from certain ethnic minorities within the UK who you who one would assume would have been offended by what was going on in that actually said that was the only opportunity we got to see people who looked like that, us on television. So we used to watch it all the time and we loved it. And that's the extreme version of it. If you can't see people from your background being represented, then it becomes very difficult to imagine yourself being able to do it. Maya, one of our writers on A Writing Chance, I'll always remember her talking about the idea that, you know, on her estate, she said, the idea of wanting to be a writer, saying you wanted to be a writer was like saying you wanted to be an astronaut. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just as ridiculous. There was there were no examples of people from her estate or the sort of place that she came from. There were no examples out there for her to relate to. And there was certainly no nowhere to start, nowhere to, she had no idea who she could talk to or where to go. And, and the idea of there being a pathway for someone coming from where she came from was just ridiculous. And like I say, for myself, I was very fortunate. I could, I could look at Richard Burton, Anthony Hopkins and go, there we are. They came from where I come from. Why can't I do it? And there was that pathway. But I think about for a, 
I don't know, some an eight-year-old girl in, in on a state in Merthyr who doesn't even watch his TV, maybe, but doesn't even realize that there's all kinds of areas of opportunity within the film and television industry. Because when I grew up watching TV, if I thought about it at all, I'd think, all right, there are actors there. <laughs> but I certainly wasn't aware that there was a director, a producer. I didn't realize there were carpenters, electricians, makeup people, stuntmen, pirate, you know, all, all the things that, that, unless you get to go down to a film set or a TV set or go into a newspaper office or, you know, a magazine uh, publishers or you know, there's, how could you possibly imagine what there is available to you? And then you come into the other area, which a lot of people talk about, which is that idea of they're not going to be interested in me, the lack of confidence, the lack of the sense of being an imposter, even when you are trying to do it, even when you, you are writing or performing or whatever, the feeling that you're an imposter and that you'll be found out. That's so prevalent amongst the people that we've been talking to on, on this project. And that there's so many people submitted entries to, to be part of this who were carers or who were single parents or themselves having physical disabilities or, or mental health issues. And there's so many different things, difficulties that are there challenging you. If you do so many things to overcome, to get to the point where you can be squeezed out, <laughs> you've got to be in there trying to get in there to be squeezed out in the first place. And there's so many things that are in the way of that. When people at, at, at theaters that I've spoken to say what they're talking about, how we can support actors from more underrepresented backgrounds to, to get into work. And I say that you need to start way, way back before that, way back before drama school. How do you get young people to even feel like that there's the possibility of them joining a youth theater if there isn't anything in their area or getting onto a writing program or, or something? This, it, it needs to start so early on. Yes. And, and actually, for our listeners who don't know, the whole concept of this special issue came about because of this mentoring scheme. You mentioned Maya, one of the writers mm. on it, A Writing Chance, which you co-founded. And actually, I've loved being one of the mentors to one of the writers on this scheme myself. And reading her writing has revealed to me how important it is to have a diversity of stories represented in our media. And I wonder, what did you want to achieve from this mm. scheme and also from showcasing these writers' features in the issue? Yeah. It was Tammy that you mentored, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. I really remember the piece that she wrote to get onto the project in the first place about being with her grandmother in, in a supermarket and feeling a huge kind of gulf between them because she couldn't speak the same language as her grandmother. And I, that really stayed with me. And there's so many things, whether it's Stephen's piece, who, uh, th that was probably the first piece I read that was submitted that really just floored me. Stephen talking about caring for his dying mother. The experiences that are being related through all the writers who submitted and as well as not just the writers who found their way onto the being part of the last 11. It reveals a sense of Britishness that is just so rare to hear. It's not only about hearing from people you don't normally hear from, but it's also getting a sense of who we are as a nation that is not the kind of thing that we really see reflected that often. I mean, I, in the issue, in the piece that I've written, I talk about the idea of what is a British story? What constitutes a British story? Because a lot of the time, it's sort of an English story that just shouts louder than anyone else. If it gets repeated enough you and you're told that means Britain, that's representative of British, then you sort of guess, just believe it. But there's very few stories that I feel really are representative of Britain. And the idea that there might be a kind of a British dream, like the American dream, the idea mm. that opportunity is there for everybody. It doesn't matter where you come from. You know, if you work hard enough, 
then you can get to the top. And that seems to be still a myth that it has a lot of power in America. And I wanted to see if that is that something, is that a story that we do tell us about ourselves in Britain? Has it ever been a story that we've told? Is it, is there any truth to it at all? And it seems very unlikely. The idea that somehow, no matter where you come from, no matter what sort of background you've had, that if you just put the work in, you can do whatever you want. That, that's, that just doesn't hold up. That's just not my experience uh, or the, my experience of looking around me and, and hearing from other people that it isn't a level playing field. And this project, A Writing Chance, was about trying to explore that. Look at that. What's getting in the way? How, you know, to, to make a positive intervention and say, how can we get rid of those obstacles or, or at least highlight what they are and start to work together and collaborate across different industries in order to open things up so that we can make it a richer conversation. And just one last question, if you don't mind. Last year, you declared yourself a not-for-profit actor after selling your houses and giving the proceeds to charity. And I just wondered if you could give our listeners more of an idea of how this works and also what the response has been, because I know something that you've spoken about before is this idea of standing up in Britain and doing something good. And then people's sort of knee-jerk response seems to be trying to criticise it or do you down, for example. Yeah, I think that on that last point, that's it's much more to do with social media. Certain mm. voices get amplified, so it can feel, it can at times feel like there's a lot more of that going on than there actually is. Certainly, in in my case, I think when it comes to, I, I have it very easy compared to a lot of other people, depending on the color of their skin and you know their gender and their sexuality and their religion and all those kind of things. Get very little of it. Yes. And I said in an interview that I was essentially becoming a sort of social enterprise actor, not for profit. And I think people thought that I was saying that was some sort of official formal thing. It's not a formal thing. What I meant was that I was trying to uh, use the money that I earn from acting to fund projects that I'm that present what I want to see change and around these things like a writing chance or, or whatever it might be uh, the homeless will cap all these kinds of things that I've been that I'm involved in now I put my own money into it and I look to, to spend as much of the money as I as I earn as I possibly can on those kinds of things I'm setting up a, an endowment fund for Wales and uh, grant funding things. You know, there's all kinds of things that I'm working on. And it was the experience of, I've talked about it before, but uh, bringing the Homeless World Cup to, to Wales and suddenly um, finding that we were we didn't have the money that we thought we had and then me having to put everything I had into it. That taught me that I could be riskier and take more risks with the way that I used the money I earned. Well, essentially, I, the reason why I felt I could do that at the time was because I knew that I was going to be earning, I'd be earning money over the next couple of years and I'd be able to pay back what I was doing then. Of course, then COVID hit, which <laughs> put a slight dent in that. But nevertheless, the idea of saying, well, I can do this now, that the window of opportunity for me will close eventually, but until it does, I can, I'm earning good money. I want to use that money to make the changes that I want to see happen. And, and if that window of opportunity was to close and I hadn't done that, and I had five cars and three houses or something, I'd feel ashamed and mm -hmm. rightfully so. And, and I, it's what I want to do. I mean, it, it's something I feel strongly about and I enjoy it. I really enjoy being, instead of being someone who just turns up and has a photograph taken or puts my name as a patron kind of thing, which is what a lot of people, and that's totally valid and fine and great to do that. But that wasn't enough for me. And actually rolling my sleeves up and getting involved in creating project and not just 
putting money in, but not actually seeing them through and making them happen. I really enjoy that. And and so I want to do as much of it as I possibly can. Yes, it's not a kind of an official formal thing, but it's, it's a, an ambition that I want to meet. I want to realize it. Thanks so much for joining us, Michael, and for talking us through this brilliant special issue. Now, if any of our listeners want to read it, they can buy it on shelves. It's out on the 25th of March, or why not subscribe? Go to newstatesman.com forward slash podcast offer. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. There is this big space of ungoverned disorder where nothing is being done and we're just kind of holding up our hands and going, well, don't know what we could do. I'm Jason Pack. And I'm Alex Hall Hall. And we're the hosts of Disorder, a brand new podcast from Goalhanger, where we'll be connecting the dots using our own experiences as well as talking to people at the forefront of global affairs. All seeking to work out. Why are the world powers no longer coordinating as they once did? The trouble is the United States, but also some European societies, are so divided. How did we get here? The modern version of the culture war in which the fight that matters is not the real one. It's about winning certain kinds of arguments online. What can we do to fix it? How do you repair disorder? It's by becoming a community... Search Disorder wherever you get your podcasts.